So two weeks ago, we started uh, this series called Goodness Gracious. This is part number three, and I have the strangest inspirations of how I put sermon series together. So I had heard this slang expression, goodness gracious. Have you ever heard people say that at times? Goodness gracious. Uh, sometimes they'll add something else to it. Goodness gracious, good God almighty. Sometimes I hear that. Or if you're a Jerry Lee Lewis fan, it's uh, goodness gracious, great balls of fire. But um, I thought to myself, this whole concept of goodness is a concept that is not only found within the fruit of the Spirit, but it's found through the whole Scriptures. And I wanted to begin two weeks ago with what I think a lot of times prevents goodness from being experienced among us. And that is, sometimes we can be very judgmental. Have you ever noticed that about human beings? We tend to make a prejudgment on other people uh, long before we know them, long before we hear their story, long before we walk a step in their moccasins. And I thought to myself, you know, Jesus taught us through that passage where the woman was caught in adultery, he taught all of us to drop the stones. And in dropping the stones, he has her look up and says, where are those that condemn you? And she says, they're not here. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go, live a good life. Live a better life. Make better choices with your life. Last week we talked about uh, developing a goodness culture. And we use the idea of fruit. We use the idea of uh, seeing it expand and seeing it become an orchard of goodness in each other's lives. Well, today I want to talk a little bit about cultivating goodness and I think we can see God's work uh, in us and in the world if we have our eyes open and if we begin to understand how we are formed as individuals. Why am I the way I am? Why are you the way you are? And a lot of that goes into the fact that uh, there's things around us all the time that is shaping how we look at life, what we think about life, how we evaluate life, that type of thing. But in our setting here today, I want us to think about how church culture matters. As we live in our culture and then also into our culture, what we find is our culture begins to live in us and into us and beyond us into the lives of other people. And what Jesus will tell us here is that a good culture nurtures goodness, that makes sense. A bad culture will do the opposite. And what we have seen in the deterioration of the church, I believe, that's my evaluation, over the last 20 years or so, is that we have not taken the understanding of culture seriously enough to make it a priority. We must nurture the virtue of goodness in each other's lives. And so this little diagram up here is church culture matters and our culture conditions how we see things. And as we then live out our own lives in our culture and then into our culture that is beyond this place, then we begin to see how that culture that we have cultivated lives in us and beyond us into the lives of other people. So let's come back to this passage in Luke chapter 11. When Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body, 
then what he is saying is that gateway where we take in information, um, that gateway whereby we process what is good and what is not good, then conditions our whole inner being and conditions how we think about ourselves, it conditions how we think about other people, and in our minds we think of ourselves many times as the rugged individualists that we make our own decisions and we make our own choices. Well, we do that, but our culture conditions many of those choices. Our culture kind of forms who we are. And so if a church is toxic or corrupted in some way, then what will happen is the way we look at life, the way we look at other people is with a dark eye. But if we have a good culture, if we encourage the best in each other's lives, then that becomes the gateway of how we look at other people and how we um, base what their, their life is on. And that is, they are made in the image of God just like we are, and they should be loved accordingly. So we all are a part of some subculture of some type. And that subculture can be in a church, it can be in your workplace, it can be in your family. Uh, the fact that we are sitting here in the United States of America makes us a part of a unique subculture as well. Uh, you know, we see life according to the subculture of our own history. So last week was 4th of July. We think a little bit about the origins of our own country. We think a little bit about our values. We think a little bit about uh, what, how we think life should work out. But even growing up within different ethnicities and even in different countries shapes how people look at life differently than those of us who are born and raised here. Sometimes that can be a great thing, but sometimes that can be a dark thing as well. And that's true of all cultures everywhere. Now the church culture can be good or it can be bad. And no church culture is perfect, of course. We're a combination of both goodness and not so much goodness at the same time. But the longer we stay only in a particular church subculture, the more we will absorb just the way that particular church subculture looks at life. So a lot of times people will church, uh, choose a church, and when they do, they don't realize they are also choosing a culture that's going to affect them. And all of a sudden we see sometimes people get so immersed in their own church subculture that they can't relate to other people uh, in society except those that think and look at life exactly like they do. And it comes out in our vocabulary. And have you ever met someone who cannot talk to you without using church subculture language? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I'm so blessed. Well, you talk to somebody on the street, they go, what are you talking about? That's a subculture term, saved, sanctified. All those type of things are subculture terms. And people that are outside of that subculture, they don't have a clue as to what you're talking about. But we do because that's what we have been immersed in and that's the way we look at the subculture. I'm comfortable with this or that. And people make choices according to what they feel most comfortable with. 
um, I find that maybe a better evaluation than whether you like the music or the children's ministry or a particular aspect of any local church is, is the subculture producing good people? Are they producing good people? And so it becomes a matter of discipleship. So when our eye is healthy, it's the lamp to our whole body, and when it's healthy, your whole body is full of light. So let's change this word light to goodness for a moment. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of goodness. Okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? But when it's unhealthy, your whole body is full of what? Not goodness, and you can use whatever term you want to describe as the opposite of that. It might be selfishness, it might be control, it might be uh, manipulation, it might be a variety of things, and you can fill it in the way you want to. But there is this concept of goodness that's found in the Scripture, and it's found in a three-letter word, T-O-V. It's a Hebrew word called tov. Tov. It's used over 700 times in the Old Testament. And what's fascinating is the word tov, we're never given a definition of what it is, but we're given a picture of how it operates. So I read for you a little bit earlier, the psalmist saying about God, God, you are good, or you are tov, and what you do is tov. So when God begins to create, let's think about this for a moment. What is tov? Well, um, it's the idea of goodness. So you've heard this phrase before. Have you ever been in a gathering where someone lifted up a glass and maybe they have a Jewish background and they say mazel tov? They usually pronounce it tov, right? Mazel tov right? But it's the word tov, and that's the idea of goodness. It means, may you have good luck, may you have a good life, that type of thing. Well, the Bible tells us God is tov. He himself is tov. That's the only thing that he reveals to us, more so than the other attributes that we can turn to. God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, all these type of things. But have you noticed there's only a few times in the Bible where there is this self-definition. In the Old Testament, God is tov, and because he is tov, because he's good, he gives another Hebrew word, hesed, that is loving kindness. In the New Testament, it is God is love, and the other is God is light. So when we think about the attributes of God, we can put a whole systematic theology together of all the attributes of God. But I love these self-definitions by the biblical authors. God is good, God is love, and God is light. And when we think about that, it comes out from the earliest pages. So in Genesis chapter 1, we were in the book of Genesis in our last series, right? And we looked at Genesis chapter 1, and after each day of creation, when God looked at what he made, he said, it is tov. It is tov. It is good. 
So cultivating goodness in us and others begins with God, and God designs the entire creation to be an expression of this goodness that He initiates in the creation week. So when we think about God Himself as Tov, then much of the Old Testament is about the beauty that God wants. So God talks at the completion of creation that it is good, and then when he makes man, he says it is very tov, it is very good. So tov is about beauty, it's about what pleases the senses and the sounds uh, that we have. Uh, At times, tov uh, is the perfect song in a right setting, At times, Tov is a cathedral that stands out among other structures. At times, Tov is a beautiful flower arrangement. At times, Tov is the smell of coffee in the morning. At times, Tov is kids playing in the pool. In other words, you take life, you look at it, and you go, oh, that's good. That's good. I love this about life. I love that about life. That is God's gift to us from creation forward. So Tov is about what's pleasant and pleasing and participatory, and goodness is about love and living. It's about learning. It's about yearning. It's about all these things because Tov is not a passive thing. Tov is an active thing. And that's what Amos was talking about. When I read Amos, He says, do what is tov, do what is good. Don't do what's evil, but do what is good. So all of us in any given situation, I think, know at times, ah, if I make a choice to do this, it brings about goodness or brings about graciousness or whatever it might be. But if I do this, it can build resentment. It can build jealousy, it might build envy, it might build anger, all those type of things. So Tov is this active ingredient that we are invited into. And then the Apostle Paul tells us here that he is convinced, as we read earlier, that we are full of goodness. Now we're full of orneriness as well, right? All of us are sinners, all of us have fallen short of God's glory, but that doesn't mean we can't do something good. We have a lot of potential. And that's true whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. People have the potential of goodness if they want to lean into it, if they want to allow it to be active, and they make their choices accordingly. Now, the Apostle Peter tells us in Acts 10.38, he said, Jesus went about doing good and healing all those oppressed by the devil for God was with him. In other words, how do we know that God was with Jesus? Well, it's by the miracles that he performed, but it's about his motivation. He went about doing good. He went about seeking good in the lives of other people. And isn't it fascinating that Jesus calls himself the good shepherd? He's the good shepherd. He's full of goodness, and that's the potential that he gives to all of us, So to be a Tov person is to be a person who from the inside out consistently tries to do what is right and what is beneficial to other people. Now, have you ever noticed, if you've done any uh, courses that talks about philosophy, that 
All the major philosophers in world religions have talked about this concept of goodness. So they've wrestled with two things primarily. What is the good life and how can I be a good person? So Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all those Greek philosophers, that was a main question they wrestled with. But did you know that Muhammad asked the same question? Did you know Buddha asked the same question? Did you know Alanis Morissette asked the same question? Well, I wouldn't call her one of the major philosophers, but boy, this song is quite unique. So look it up on YouTube, that I would be good. And she just kind of goes through a litany of things about her own life. And so the background to this little uh, song is that when she put out her album, uh, Jagged Little Pill, the whole album was full of woundedness and bitterness about life. And then after a significant spiritual awakening in India, she spent some time in India, she returned with a more contemplative tone toward life. And when she did, she was reflecting on this theme of goodness, and she asked this question, can I be good even if this or that? So if you can read that, it goes, that I would be good even if I did nothing, that I would be good even if I got the thumbs down, that I would be good even if I stayed sick, that I would be good even if I gained 10 pounds, that I would be good even if I went bankrupt, that I would be good if I lost my hair and my youth, that I would be great if I was no longer queen, that I would be grand if I was not all-knowing, that I would be loved even when I numb myself, that I would be good even when I'm overwhelmed, that I would be loved even when I was fuming, that I would be good even when I was clingy, that I would be good even if I lost my sanity, that I would be good whether with or without you. She could have just kept on going, but as you know, not too many people like to listen to songs that are over four minutes long. So she stopped there, but she could have kept going about various aspects of life. And I think the key to all this, when she was thinking about goodness, she's thinking about goodness as a state of being, not so much about particular behavior. Can I be good even if this happened to me? Can I be good even if that happened to me? So what we find is that, <clears throat> is there a way for us to be good even apart from performance and attainments and achievements and conformity and all those type of things. Can we be good from the inside out? That's what Jesus was talking about. Um, and yet at the same time, I think many times what we find is we put on a charade of goodness. We like to look good to other people, but we're not being real about who we are and what we think or what we struggle with. And boy, that, is that prevalent in church culture or what? We make sure it looks good on the outside. Now, what is the pressure there? The pressure there is you are not accepted if you don't conform to this. You're not wanted if you don't conform to this. And we just got to blow that up and throw it away. So here is a promise 
comes out of Titus, another writing of the Apostle Paul. He's writing to this young man, Titus. And Titus was given a commission by Paul to be a pastor on the island of Crete. And it's fascinating, the reputation of these people that lived on the island of Crete is that they were scoundrels, okay? And um, so Paul then says, Titus, go do your best to work among these people that can't be trusted, these people that are not good in the ordinary sense of the word, and here's what I want you to share with them. This is what I want you to just communicate. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Now, don't miss the last line. Eager to do what is good. Eager to do what is good. The grace of God has appeared to mankind. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, he modeled goodness, he encouraged goodness, and he offers salvation from a self-centered way of life to live out a better kind of life of goodness toward other people. Now, Titus goes into this very corrupt culture, and I'm not sure whether he made a dent in it or not, but his motivation was to do what is good because ultimately that's what the gospel is all about. The church has made the good news, the tov news, into all about getting into heaven after you die. And we have missed, we have missed what the gospel is all about. It gives to us the promise of life beyond this one. However, it is a different type of life as we live it in the present. And the tov news, the good news, is that the gospel is about God's goodness coming to us in Jesus Christ and thus making us agents of his goodness toward other people. He, Paul uses another term. He calls us ambassadors of Christ. That's a great term, isn't it? Ambassadors trying to build bridges and not walls with other people. So what we're going to do for the rest of this series is we're going to talk about the circle of Tov, or the circle of goodness. Now, I'm taking this from a book that is written by Scott McKnight. It's called uh, The Church, uh, A Church Called Tov, A Church Called Tov. And in it, <clears throat> he talks about this becoming the basis of building a good culture. One is nurturing empathy. Second is nurturing grace. Number three is putting people first. Number four is telling the truth. Number five is nurturing justice. Number six is nurturing service. And then number uh, seven is nurturing Christ-likeness. So... Nurturing empathy, grace, putting people first, telling the truth, nurturing justice, service, and Christ-likeness. 
is what helps to cultivate goodness in each other's lives. So we all know, we celebrate it every Christmas, that God became a man. And in the incarnation, we have the perfect picture of what goodness looks like. So God is like Jesus. That's what the incarnation is telling us. God has always been like Jesus. We see that in the over 700 times in the Old Testament where it talks about goodness. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known that, but now we do. And I think that is a reminder of where this is going. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. If we can get a picture of that, we can understand that, you know, that diametric opposite of what we think about of the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. That is, God is angry, God is judgmental, all those things in the Old Testament is more an expression of the darkness um, of the cultures that is trying to penetrate, uh, God's goodness is trying to penetrate, and they get glimpses of it. The psalmist says, you are good and you do only good. But many times it gets a little bit dark. Jesus comes into the world, and when he comes into the world, he lights the candle for us, and he calls himself the light of the world to be able to see what God is really like so that we can imitate that God. Isn't that cool? So I hope you'll carry this with you. Next week, we're going to talk about empathy, okay? And uh, as we do so, uh, again, we'll see that displayed in the person of Christ, but it is a reflection of what God is like. God is an empathetic God. So would you stand with me? We're going to close our time in prayer. And um, did you guys like being down here? Is that okay? Okay, very good. We need to know that. We have a board meeting tomorrow now. We're going to talk about it. So may God's love and his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his compassion and his empathy and his justice and all that makes him who he is as reflected in the person of Jesus. May that rest upon you in this coming week. May it swell your heart with gratefulness that God has revealed himself to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And may you have a wonderful week of being God's agent in this world. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, so have a Tove week.